Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. If you want to ask me any questions, send it to that email address, and I will get it into my question queue. We've got some really interesting questions this week, pretty pretty all over the place, and I, I hope you like the selection this week. Um, this is episode number 310. And uh, we are rolling through spring here in uh, 2021, and uh, vaccines are happening. We got our first vaccination shot this week, my wife and I did, and we're very happy about that. Next one is scheduled for about a month from now, and we will then be done and immunized. And I hope the rest of you are following suit. It is important. It is science. It is real. And um, it is our way of getting back to normal is by using science to conquer that which is killing us so that it's not killing us anymore. And uh, and we are making that happen. So I hope you guys are taking advantage of that. Um, I wanted to plug the podcast for this week. I did a uh, wonderful little chat with Seth Andrews, who is um, running a channel. He's the host of a channel called The Thinking Atheist. And um, he's a really wonderful man, actually, and quite rational and reasonable and fun to talk to. And we covered a wide variety of topics uh, having to do with, you know, all the usual stuff we talk about, but also getting into the weeds a bit on, or details, I should say, not weeds, really, but into, into some of the details and, and problems we're having with uh, with the atheist world and with some of the nonsense that goes on there. So anyway, I hope you guys will check that out. And I hope that you will consider uh, supporting the channel, either through Patreon or PayPal, of course, or through Critical Merchandise, which is a site that is still up, that I have still put merch out there, merchandise, hats, shirts, mugs, you know, things you can get logos and and uh, and cute little sayings and, and little uh, graphics on that I've created. So anyway, uh, those are uh, up there, and the link is below in the description section to this video and all videos that I post. That all being said, let's get on with your questions now. Steve Wood, this is a question that I have wanted to ask you for a long time. An enormous amount of high-profile Scientologists leave. Some speak out and some don't, but those that do are labeled as suppressives. So my question is, considering that at the time these people were the most ethical people on the planet, how did they get so far without Scientology realizing that they were, in fact, SPs? How did that happen, and why was it not discovered? Does that question ever get discussed by those that remain as to why these high-up individuals have all of a sudden left? The people I'm talking about are, without a doubt, the highest echelons of Scientology management. Okay, Steve, this is actually really easy, and um, it's... It's uh, It has to do with Scientology ethics and the labels that we have talked about so many times, which are PTS, Potential Trouble Source, and Suppressive Person, or SP. Okay, I've, I've, I've defined and gone over and explained the relationship of these words so many times because they are. it's such a crucial point of how Scientology engages in abusive behavior and demands shunning or disconnection because of these labels. So, um, so okay, so what, what am I talking about? Well, 
When a person is declared a suppressive person by the Church of Scientology, they are no they are persona non grata. They are no longer wanted. They are they are people who the church has deemed are so bad or so toxic as personalities that they are not to be talked to or connected with in any way. They are they are of um Mal intent, you could say, is as how the church thinks about and has labeled them. That is what a suppressive person label is. Is it is a condition? It's a technical state in Scientology of a person, as I've explained before, who is stuck in an incident in the past, way distant past. We're talking about past lives, kind of past. Um, you know, so thousands, millions of years ago, and they are stuck in this time where everybody that they perceive now in the here and now, they are they are seen as an enemy or a bad person trying to kill them from some distant event in the past. And so they act a bit nuts and they they try overtly or covertly to um, mess with people, to bring them down, tear them down. You know, this is your toxic, antisocial type personality. That's your SP. However, when Hubbard invented this and started using it, it became all too clear right away that this kind of labeling could be used or utilized to get rid of enemies of the church, disaffected types, people who were, you know, kind of clawing around on the outskirts, tearing at it and complaining and bitching and moaning about Scientology in some fashion, or who were disaffected with it, who thought, yeah, this isn't the thing I need anymore and I'm going to, you know, I'm I'm done with this crap and I suggest you guys get out of here too because clearly this is nuts. We've invested all this time and money and and look what Hubbard's done. He's, you know, he's a liar. He's a scumbag, etc. This, you know, many, many, many people over all the years of Dianetics and Scientology have come to that conclusion and have, you know, wisely stepped up and stepped out and gotten away. And they got the ire of Hubbard as a reward. You know, Hubbard hated on them and, and was very vindictive. And and so he, when he invented this suppressive person label, it became very convenient to start calling people suppressive. And that way they were disconnected from, you know, the good Scientologists who were still loyal to Hubbard. And, uh, and really the suppressive person label became a label of political or ideological control rather than just a point of this technical thing that Hubbard had said. Now we're using this more broadly, right? Um, Hubbard said that there were, you know, that that 20% of the population, if I'm remembering these numbers right, 20% of the population is connected to a suppressive in some fashion or another, and that makes them PTS, a potential trouble source. The suppressives make up only about 2.5% of the population. They're a very small percentage. And yet, it certainly seems like a whole bunch of people were getting declared suppressive by Hubbard and by the ethics apparatus of Scientology, more than just two and a half percent of them of the people, right? Well, how does this work? How is this explained? Well, basically, the way this is reasoned out in Scientology, and this is the direct answer to your question, Steve, now that I've sort of explained all this framework. Um a person can go so PTS 
to the suppressive. In other words, they're connected to a suppressive. The suppressive is giving them a hard time, antagonizing them, making them feel bad. Well, a person can go so PTS that they actually take on the role of the SP. They start acting like the SP. Hubbard talks about what's, you know, a valence shift is the, is the wording he describes. Valence in Scientology is a really stupidly used word for personality, personality package, and, a, you know, a set of ideas and, and characteristics that make up a, a, a person's identity or personality. That's called a valence in Scientology. And if you're in someone else's valence, that means you're acting like them or have taken on personality characteristics like them. You could be in your mother's valence, for example, and then you act a lot like your mom, right? And this would be something that they would want to deal with in Scientology because you're not supposed to be acting like your mom. You're supposed to be acting like you. So if you're out of valence, they want to get you in valence. And one of the ways you can go out of valence is you can go into the valence of an SP, you know, instead of, instead of acting like your mom, you're acting like an SP. You're carping, you're critical, you're tearing down the church, you're acting like a bad person. And you're not necessarily technically a suppressive person who's stuck in some incident in the past. You have had auditing and you have responded to that auditing. A characteristic in Scientology of a suppressive person is that they don't respond to auditing. And yet here we have these people who are you know, have been audited, have claimed gains and successes, have written success stories, have been involved with the church for years, even decades, dedicated their life to it, like a Mike Rinder or a Marty Rathman, and, um, or a Jeff Hawkins or, or Amy Scobie or any of the number of people who were high-level, high-profile Sea Org members in David Miscavige's, you know, world, in this, all the way up at that level, and then they get they get out and they get they get kicked out or they they escape and then they get labeled suppressive. And you know so so if if you're at, you know you're asking well how do Scientologists talk to themselves about this and how do they you know justify or rationalize that there's you know so many of these SPs who were around for so many years the answer is that they're not really suppressive. They're just in the valence of a suppressive because they're so PTS. And the reason that they have gone so PTS, the reason that they're such extreme potential trouble sources, and look at all the trouble they're making for us. They're going on TV. They're, you know, they're bitching and moaning. They're doing all this stuff. Um, is because they, of their own moral transgressions, their own overts. That's what made them PTS in the first place, is they're bad people who are doing bad things. They weren't necessarily suppressive. Again, this technical thing of being stuck in this incident, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago, and, you know, all this, all this other stuff that goes along with that, they don't necessarily need to be that in order to be labeled suppressive because they're acting like they're suppressive, so they might as well be suppressive. This is not something, I'm giving you so much detail right now that amongst the world of, in the world of Scientology, they don't really think this through very, very thoroughly. They don't have to. There's so many thought-stopping cliches and mental control mechanisms installed in people's heads through the indoctrination and the practice of Scientology, that 
you have to understand that the questions you have, Steve and others who are asking me these questions, right? You have a much more objective frame of reference with which to look at Scientology and ask these questions. Well, this doesn't make any sense. How does this work? And I, and I want to just get across to you that while I'm explaining to you how this works, the truth of the matter is that in the world of Scientology, they don't actually think this much. You know, I'm going around explaining all of this. And this, and if and if a Scientologist were to really think about, well, why is this guy and uh, you know declared a suppressive even though he's not really suppressive? You know, he had years of auditing and he was around and he seemed like a good guy. This doesn't really make any sense. You, you see, no Scientologist could let themselves think that way because that's disloyalty to the church, and it also is questioning the wisdom and power of the ethics apparatus, the justice apparatus of Scientology. And you can't let yourself do that when you're in one of these groups. I, I'm, I'm getting this, I'm trying to get across that I don't know that we all appreciate yet fully the, the, the magnitude of the thought reform or the thought control that goes on in these groups to suppress even thinking or asking the questions that you guys ask me. And I thought this would be an opportunity to explain all of this, the minutia of this, this question, but also get across the point that, that you're thinking about this way more than any Scientologist lets themselves think about this. So I know that there is a frustration with trying to understand how Scientologists reason through the decision-making or the, the, the put up with the amount of nonsense that they put up with. And to be blunt, there isn't a lot of thinking going on. And that's why they put up with it. Because they have thought-stopping cliches in place and double-binds. As I, I did a whole podcast on this a couple weeks ago on double-binds. This is a big deal. And these mechanisms are what keep people stupid. They literally create stupid people. Because if you can give a label to people and they don't have to think anymore beyond a label, oh, he's PTS. Oh, he's just an SP. I, I don't have to think about those people anymore. And I don't. As a Scientologist, I would no longer be thinking about them anymore. It would be like... Oh, we lost him to QAnon. Okay, maybe that's something that, that some of you can relate to out there, right? Is, is you, you lose people to these, these mindsets, these crazy cultural, you know, culty ideas. And that's how Scientologists think about people when they get declared is, ah, oh, he went to the dark side. We lost him. He's gone. And that's it. That's as much thinking as they do. So I'm giving you I, my answer. The answer that I gave you is the valid answer. And if a Scientologist were to wonder how would an SP be declared when he's not really suppressive or he's been around all these years and he seemed to have gains and he seemed to not be as suppressive, how did that happen? Well, the, the, I think the answer I gave you would pretty much be the answer they would reason out. 
but I hope I'm getting across to you that they wouldn't even think that much about it. And that's the kind that that's the power of the control that these groups exert over people is they don't get them thinking badly. I mean, they do, they do get them thinking badly, but more to the point is they're actually taking away these people's ability to think. And that's kind of an important point that I don't know that I've really stamped on as hard as I am right now. So I hope that's getting across and I hope that helps answer future questions on this subject of contradictory thinking in these groups, especially with Scientology, because it's, you know, it's just the reality is there's just not a lot of thinking going on. All right, there you go. Kevin Zay, I was wondering if you could comment with your thoughts on troubled teen programs such as Teen Challenge. Some of these programs seem to be using methods and techniques that are not science or evidence-based and end up causing more harm than anything to the people who go through them. In fact, I have heard of such horror stories as reenacting the rape or sexual assault that took place as part of the quote-unquote therapy or breakdown slash buildup process for survivors of those crimes who were residents or patients or whatever. I also heard from a friend that went to Teen Challenge that none of the people she was there with who had alcohol or drug problems are clean now. As an aside, do you think any of these might possibly check any of the bite model boxes? Okay, thank you for this question, Kevin. And I'm going to speak specifically about Teen Challenge and then maybe more broadly about religious-based, faith-based recovery or addiction handling programs. Um, let's see, specifically the Teen Challenge, I looked into this because it's not something I was real super familiar with or had a lot of experience with before you asked me this question. So I am, you know, conditionally answering this on the, on the basis that I've only really skimmed the surface of what this is about, but the surface was, was pretty interesting and, and I kind of got the idea of what's going on. Um, Teen Challenge is something that was started by a pastor uh, back in the 60s, grew into a, you know, addiction program uh, or a, a recovery kind of program. It's a live-in 12-month program, um, and that's pretty extensive, and there's a lot of, um, well, a whole lot to the program. Uh, there's vocational training, there's a lot of faith-based work, uh, Bible-based work, and Okay, and then as you have mentioned and as others have written about, if you go looking this up, you will find uh, some pretty horrific stories of abuse and, and nonsense. This is a program that does, like the Church of Scientology's Narconon program and other um, religious or faith-based or faith-operated programs, they use graduates as workers in the program. So, and this is international. This this Teen Challenge thing has, has grown to a, to a very large, um, many, many, many hundreds of facilities all over the world that are doing this. And they do gay conversion therapy and they do addiction counseling and um, people who are recovering from immoral lifestyles, as they would put it, like, you know, people who are prostitutes or trafficked, things like that. So we're talking about a wide population of, of potential, you know, candidates of people who will go into these programs. And um, obviously, we're talking about teens. And so, 
Um, if you don't believe that the Church of Scientology has people who are qualified to do drug addiction counseling and recovery work like they do with Narconon, and none of the people who work at Narconon are qualified in any way, shape, or form to do any of the work they're doing. None of them. Not one. I believe the same is true for those who are running this teen challenge thing, right? Because this is a faith-based program. This is all about, you know, recovery through giving over to the Lord. And um, there is very little evidence-based, as you mentioned in your question, there's very little to no real evidence-based uh, methodology or work being done, you know, from a psycho-sociological perspective. And this is now going, maybe going more broadly to my opinion or attitude about these, about these faith-based church-based programs where just because somebody has a, you know, minister's garb or has a, has degrees in, in uh, divinity, they feel qualified to deal with very serious and very real problems that people have that are not just based in their personal shortcomings. You know, drug addiction, criminality, um, alcohol addiction, these are, these are not things that just exist because we lack willpower or we are basically immoral, flawed beings and we are somehow evading the grace of God and that's what's preventing us from living, you know, moral, ethical, wonderful, productive lives. Yet this, what I just described, what I just said is basically the attitude and fundamental belief that these faith-based programs operate on is it's all about blaming the victim. And it's all about how you, you know, it's on you that these horrible things have happened to you. Well, sure enough, we all have personal responsibility for our lives. No question about that. But to pretend that, that we all live in a vacuum and that the that anything that's wrong with this is only due to our shortcomings, our personal failings, our failure to be responsible is complete nonsense. It's, it's destructive nonsense to actually think that way. And th this is classically how psychologists and uh, religious, you know, the, the, these kind of things have moved forward until fairly recently when we've been learning that the problems are more, are broader they're bigger than just us. There's, in other words, there are societal factors. And it's not about blaming society. That's not, that's not my point. The point is that if you're going to deal effectively with somebody who is suffering from addiction, who has been trafficked or coercively controlled, who has had you know, major life issues and trauma and abuse in their lives, and without question, anybody who's involved in prostitution, especially teens, are going to have backgrounds of abuse and trauma. I mean, uniformly, you're going to find that to be the case. The exceptions will be few and far between. And because uh, we're talking about human and sex trafficking here, and we're talking about, you know, that this is not, this is not good stuff. 
And this has been, of course, what I've been studying for months. So my head's like all in this this little world right now. And the and and so I, I guess I'm talking about this this way because I'm trying to get across that I believe with the amount of knowledge I now have about this and, and having looked at it so so intensively uh, as we have been for months now, that I'm seeing these these kind of programs in a whole different light because I'm now much more aware of like the psychological principles involved. I mean, we have identity issues disassociation issues connected with the identity problems, right? We have um, coercive control and all of the things that coercive control does to people. When you're dealing with addiction, you're not just dealing with the individual, you're dealing with all the social factors, right? People, peer pressure and um, even coercive control that can be exerted on teens and in peer group situations where you get the in-group, out-group, othering. I mean, you get a lot of stuff going on here, right? There's a lot of layers to this you could look at when you start diving into the psychology of how you're going to help this person. And 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 I rather than try to give you guys like all this stuff on recovery, all I want to tell you is that it's really complicated. And there's a lot of layers to it. And when you're going to deal with an individual, you're going to deal with them. You're not going to factory production line people through mental health or addiction counseling and, and help. It doesn't work that way. Everybody's got their own things, and you're going to have to deal with them as an individual. And so, you know, these kind of live-in programs where we're going to pray every day, and that's going to solve all the problems to me is just adding another layer. If you if you're detecting any upset from me right now or any sort of like er about this, it is because I see so clearly that what's going on in these groups and this is Narconon with Scientology, this is a teen challenge with their, you know, gay conversion therapy and abusive nonsense and recreations and all this other crap. You know, you're not going to pray the addiction away. You're not going to pray the gay away, and you're not going to pray people's actual mental health problems away. It doesn't work like that at all. At best, you are just engaging in further disassociation, further identity confusion, and further guilt and shaming, and you're just further traumatizing the person. And when you and when you do it with from a from a really weird and sick place of love where you're just showing them love by abusing them and traumatizing them, it makes it even worse because that confuses the person 10 times worse than when they were being traumatized and abused by somebody who wasn't didn't have any pretense about helping the person. You know, a pimp isn't about helping somebody, right? He's about getting his money, getting paid. And uh, yeah, they will use all the control mechanisms of pretending to help and all that. But you know what I mean. There's, it's a little bit more of a business transactional kind of relationship. When you have a minister or a priest or a religious figure or an authority figure in, uh, in Narconon, let's say, and I'm going to keep making this comparison because I, I see these things as very, very same, very similar um, when you have this kind of, of figure, they're doing it from a position of help and love and support. And when you're getting abused by somebody who loves you, it is worse than if you're being abused by somebody who you know doesn't have your best interest at heart. It's less confusing. It's less. It, it, it has less 
long-term psychological effects, even if the physical damage is, you know, is rough. Um, and I'm just comparing, you know, kind of apples to worse apples. I'm not trying to say that getting abused by somebody who doesn't like you is fun, <laughs> obviously, but there's levels to this, right? And it's much more difficult to help somebody who has been deeply abused and traumatized by somebody who they think loves them. You know, it just is. So, so there's levels to this, right? Is what I'm trying to get across. And, um, and these, these faith-based programs don't really give a whole lot of credence or attention to the nuances and, and literature, the psychological literature of how and what is going on with these people. They are sure they have their own faith-based solutions and the Bible is all they need or L. Ron Hubbard is all they need. You know, again, same, same. Right, which is why I'm I'm making the connection. So that's kind of uh, so you ask, you know, do these check any of the bite model boxes? Yeah, yeah, they check almost all of them, and that's my problem with with them is they, you know, they, when you're exerting coercive control over somebody in an effort to release them or free them or 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 de-traumatize them from coercive control, it's not going to work. It, you know, this just doesn't. That's not how you do this work. <laughs> And um, and I just wish I could get that across to all of these people in this you know in this this industry of nonsense that that goes on because I really do have um, I don't have let me be clear that I do not have contempt for the people who are honestly trying to help others. It takes a, it's a fantastic thing to step up and try to help other people. And, and, and the work that is done in a lot of these groups is done from a place of honest intent to, to help people. That doesn't change the fact that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And it's not the intentions of the people who are doing this work that I question. It's not their morality that I question. It is their wisdom and their lack of in, informed, you know, knowledge about the subject on which they are dealing with. And religion is is not adequate to the task of dealing with deep addiction and trauma and abuse. It's just it's just not. And that's my view on it. And um, that's not to say, of course, as I sit here and people are going to respond to this and they're going to think, well, I was helped. Well, I talked to my pastor. Well, I did this program. Well, I was helped. Well, good for you. I, you know, uh, good. I'm happy that you were helped. But I'm talking in broad statistical terms here. I'm saying that it, in, it, it's going to hurt more than it's going to help. In a broad look over a population of people, this is not a good thing to be doing. It's a bad thing to be doing. There are much better things that we could do to deal with addiction and helping people get over coercive control and, and their past stress and trauma. And that's my take on that. So I don't know. I hope, I hope that's somewhat informative and not just a rant. Um, but that's, that's what I have to say about that. Laura Watts. Hi, Chris. Could you explain why Scientologists care so much about going exterior, quote unquote? It's not something I would be interested in doing, so I don't get the appeal. Is it about being invisible plus flying? If so, you've probably heard about that question. Would you rather have the power of flight or invisibility? Hubbard is basically covering both bases, isn't he? Hey, Laura, great question. I hadn't really thought of it in terms of superpowers before like that, but 
Yeah, I guess he kind of is. I, you know, I always prefer, by the way, um, um, Jay Moore does a wonderful stand-up bit about working with Christopher Walken and uh, how they had a conversation one day about, would you rather have the power of flight or a tail? <laughs> and Christopher Walken went on this whole role about how he'd rather have a tail, uh, like a dog, a tail, right, than the power of flight. It's a hilarious skit. Um, now, as far as your question goes, you know, I, that's an interesting point because um, it's funny how I have wanted this, and this was something that did appeal to me as a Scientologist, and I suppose in a way still does. And it's interesting, of course, that there are people who this doesn't appeal to at all. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought that there were people who wouldn't want to pop out of their head and fly around or or have the power of invisibility or something, right? But I guess everybody doesn't want that. And that's totally fine. Um, Scientologists look at exteriorization as a step or as a mm, step, as something that could happen, that would be interesting if it happened, that eventually we all do because you die and then you leave your body, right? But but to be able to do it while you're still controlling and living in the body and using the body as your as your means of communicating with the rest of the universe, um, you know, it seems like the kind of thing that you'd be able to do at any time. And yet it's this really hard thing to figure out how to do in Scientology. Um, and so it kind of becomes a little bit of a a thing to try to achieve or a standard to try to hit to show that you're actually making progress and, and improving. And remember that status is kind of a thing in Scientology. The, with all the certificates and awards and and titles and everything that they give out in that group, um, being exterior or going exterior is definitely a thing. And in fact, there's even a level, there's a there's a, a thing called the L's, the L rundowns, which we've talked about before, at, that they're only delivered in Clearwater. And I think it's L12, the highest one, I think it's L12, maybe it's L11, that has the end result of being stably exterior. And that's kind of interesting, right? you go stably outside your body. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean, if you're exterior, that you are seeing things from outside your body, seeing things from the corner of the room or, or from outside yourself. You could be exterior just by being bigger or more aware of what's going on around you and stuff like that. Now, as far as why somebody would want to do this. Let me let me mention something that I've never really talked about before, which is um, something Hubbard talks about in some of the early lectures of Scientology is being able to learn things or know things simply by kind of permeating them. Like if this was something I wanted to, like if I wanted to, if this was a, a car engine and I wanted to learn all about it, and I'm a Thetan, or I'm a spirit, right? Yeah, I could go read books, and I could go do this, and I could go do that. Or I could just permeate its space. As a, as a spiritual entity, I could, I could occupy this space instead of occupying this space. And Hubbard talks about the fact that you can learn and know about a thing by doing that. So I never once 
Not once in all the years I was in Scientology did anyone ever claim to me that they learned things by going exterior and permeating the space of the thing they were trying to learn about. But Hubbard talked about that more than once. And um, that's kind of interesting, right? Because it's a, it's, a, it's, a it's, a, it's a way of looking at your potentials and your power and ability differently. And so, well, if that's possible, what else is possible? You know, this kind of thinking, right? And, um, and that might be an incentive for some Scientologists to want to go exterior. It's also supposed to, of course, prove to you that you are a spiritual entity. And while there's a lot of people in Scientology who claim to believe that they are Thetans, they're really taking it on faith. It is an article of faith in Scientology to, that you are a spiritual entity. But until you go exterior, you haven't really proven it to yourself, have you? You know, so that's a reason why Scientologists want to go exterior is they want that experience because that would be the proof, right? Proof's in the pudding. And in fact, one of the things that apparently Mary Sue Hubbard had a real chip on her shoulder about for many years and had a real problem with was she never went exterior. And Hubbard tried really, really hard to get her exterior. And I don't know that they ever accomplished it. But this was a little uh, anecdote from the ship, from the ship days when Hubbard was sailing around on the ocean blue with his wife and crew. And uh, she was pretty, you know, torqued. She was pretty upset about this. So, um, so this is kind of a thing in Scientology as a sort of a standard that people try to achieve so that they know that they are making progress in their spiritual abilities. And, uh, and that's kind of what it really about the most significance that it has. Um, and people claim to go exterior a lot in Scientology. I mean, it's not like it's really that hard to find people who have claimed to be exterior. Um, mostly when they're feeling that euphoria following an auditing session. That is when they're just, ah, I'm out of my head. I'm so excited. Blah, blah, blah. So that's when you kind of run into that sort of thing. Um, and it's more about that, at least from my experience in Scientology, it was really more about those kind of things than it was about having superpowers, which is why I kind of laughed at your, at, your, um, at your question and the way you worded it there. So anyway, thank you for that question, Laura. That was, uh, that was interesting. Barney Saunders. I've heard it said regarding the Nexium defectors and in general that there's a risk of ex-cult members becoming activists too soon before they've dealt with their healing and self-care. Was that your experience at all? If not, why? Interesting question, Barney. Thanks for asking me this. I was noted as coming out right away and speaking out and people were really surprised when I came out back in 2013 and and 14 and was really hitting the ground running and speaking out. And um, in hindsight, I obviously could have done it very, very differently, but I'm a talker, as you guys might have noticed. Like, I really am. And I really talk a lot. Um, so it's very hard for me personally to contain or constrain myself. I have a real, it's a challenge. It always has been going back to first grade. I mean, all the way back in my, as long as I can remember, 
I've been that way. Um, so whether it was going to be talking to you guys through a camera or talking to friends or family, which I, who, whose ears I was burning uh, and turning and, and bending a lot during that time period and, and since, right? I talk to my friends all the time. And I'm a very communicative person. And I, when I've got stuff brewing or I've got things on my mind or I've got, you know, stuff on my chest, I've got to get it off. i got to talk. So, um, or write. But, but talking more is better than writing for me. So, um, so I think for me, and especially, of course, also given my issues and problems with psychologists and psychiatrists, which I have had issues with, um, you know, I straightened myself out early on with how bad psychiatry is. And I didn't continue to believe Hubbard's nonsense about it. But that didn't mean that I had the finances or the wherewithal or the time or ability to go you know, avail myself of, of psychological help. I tried to get some therapy at one point with a cult-trained counselor, and we did a few sessions, but it was just too expensive for me, and I didn't have insurance and blah, blah, blah. Um, that was years ago. Since then, I have um, really leaned heavily in on education as the as the key component of my recovery. That's that's usually a part of anybody's recovery if they're doing a, a psychological program of treatment and, and recovery. There will there will there will be psychoeducational components to it. For me, that's been the bulk of my recovery and my talking to you guys, right? Or talking to friends and family. And um and so I don't think I came out too soon you know, or that I did something wrong or that I could have done it better. I just don't see that for my circumstances and my situation. I know for sure that there are some people who did come out and start talking too soon. I'm not naming names. I'm not thinking of any specific or anybody you might know or something like that. I'm just saying that there are people who do that. And um, in fact, it even came up in the podcast I did yesterday with Seth uh, Andrews, where he mentioned that uh, a content creator, Jimmy Snow, who is um, a former uh, Mormon, I believe, or JW, he um, said, you know, you should just, just nobody should start talking until they've been out for four years and have had time to process everything. And I get where he's coming from. I would never lay down such a blanket statement like that because I don't think that's true. But I do know that for some people it's true. And that some people need that time to chill and process and calm down and, and give themselves the time and space and distance that they need. Uh, so I think it's individual to people. And... Um, you know, self-care is definitely something that my background did not let me appreciate well enough until I'd, you know, stripped off a lot of layers of the onion. And, and, and you guys have tracked with me on this through the years. You've seen how my journey has gone and how the onion layers have, have come off. And now I'm at a point where I just don't think scientologically anymore at all. Um, Except, <laughs> except when I find myself doing so, and it does still happen. 
And the self-care thing that I've been going on about for the last few weeks on my channel here, if you guys have noticed, has been a kind of onion layer in itself because I really eschewed, I really, really did push back quite hard on the idea of needing to give myself a break, you know, give myself time, enough time, right? And, you know, it's just been a it's been a, it's been a work in progress this whole time. Right. So, um, so first I had to learn how to relax at all. Then I had to learn how to relax for periods of time without guilt. That took a long time, long time, still an issue sometimes, but not anywhere near what it used to be. I mean, I couldn't sit still for five minutes when I, for the first couple of years after getting out of the church, be without feeling guilty that I wasn't working. I just couldn't. Now it's now it's a much now it's kind of inverted. It's it's very different. My work is work and my play is play and and I am, you know, able to to choose both of these things uh, a lot more freely than I used to be able to. So, um you know, so it's I don't know. So it's a little hard for me to say, you know, I can't take my template or my experience and lay it over everybody else. I, I can only say that, you know, from my own experience, I think the path I took was pretty much the path I needed to take, but other people are going to have different experiences with that. Nick C. If Hubbard were to live and develop Scientology in the 2020s rather than in the 1950s, do you think he would require electronic recording of auditing sessions? If so, would it be audio or video? If not, why not? More broadly, do you have any thoughts about the effects of technology on the practices of destructive cults? The impact on outward-aimed functions, internet PR, recruitment via social media, etc., is clearly visible from the outside. But what about internal functions aimed at the current members? Some future Hubbard could conceivably come up with a god helmet attached directly to an AI. What do you think? Okay, thank you for this question, Nick. Um, there's some layers to this one. Let's uh, let's take a look at a few things. First off, uh, you ask about the technology of recording auditing sessions. And if Hubbard were to start up now, then he absolutely would be taking advantage of the latest and greatest. Hubbard was all about the latest and greatest, and he was about being a trendsetter. Not, you know, Hubbard said he didn't follow trends; he set them. And um, and in the 1980s, in regards to music, is what he was talking about there in filmmaking. But that was his attitude about him and his place and his position in the world. He, he considered himself an authority figure for the world. So he was always trying to be up ahead at the bleeding edge of of where things were at. For example, the installation of the telex systems, which was cutting edge tech. At the time that he was putting it in internationally with Scientology organizations in the mid-1960s, early to mid-60s is when that was happening. And that was an international communications network that he set up with those groups. Not trying to not trying to show off or say that he did something impressive. I'm trying to say that he was trying to keep up with the latest and greatest because he wanted his organizations to operate efficiently and smoothly. In the 1960s is when, in terms of layering here, 1960s is when modern Scientology was developed. Throughout the 1950s, Scientology and Dianetics auditing looked and sounded and felt very different from how auditing looks and sounds and feels now. That's because of what Hubbard put together in the 60s. And I bring this up because 
Originally, in the 1950s, I mean, auditing worksheets, as I've described in, in, in gory detail here on this show, um, hardly existed. You know, PC folders weren't really a thing. Case supervision with, you know, the auditor and he writes it up and puts it in a folder and sends it to the case supervisor. That whole system didn't even exist in the 1950s. This was something that was developed at St. Hill in the 60s. I'm bringing this up because Hubbard's efforts to record auditing really started there. And there was a look-listen system, and Hubbard was using AV. He was using cameras, uh, live feed, black and white cameras, and he was doing auditing demonstrations where he was showing how to do auditing by putting a camera and recording in the room and live feeding it to a room of students who would be watching the auditing demonstration. And there are many recorded demonstrations of this. There are audio recordings of them, not video recordings, because I don't know that he had video recording technology at that time um, to, to record the live streaming that he was doing. He did do some films. He did film work of some of his auditing demonstrations and of um, auditing sessions. But that was for educational purposes to train auditors. It was also in the 1960s that Hubbard developed the Guardian's office and the whole private investigator, you know, vindictive fair gaming thing. That really came to the fore in the 60s, especially when he started up the Sea Org. So by that point is when I'm, the reason I'm talking about all this in this detail is because I believe it was in this, this time period that Hubbard started realizing, right, starting in that 1960 with the SEC checking being developed, the security checking, and then the worksheets and the live streaming and the video camera work and the recording of things, it was during this time period that I think Hubbard realized the power of having blackmail material on his parishioners. Right? I don't think that was really top front and center in his head during the 1950s. I think he was. I think he had bigger picture items on his on his agenda um, in terms of building up the organizations, surviving, making money, etc. Um, but by the time of St. Hill and, and, and all of that, he was he, he had an operation. It was going. And he was refining and working over how auditing should be done. And I think this is the point when he realized that, you know, hey, we've got we've got power here. We've got people's secrets. And I can use this if they turn on us. And this is when the fair gaming came into play. Okay, so point is that if he'd had the ability to audio and visually record all the auditing sessions that were going on, I think he absolutely would have put it into place at that time. And so if he developed it now, yes, I do think that you would see that. And that's my, that's my whole case for that, right, is because of how the whole thing developed in the first place. I wanted to give all that uh, reasoning to it. So, so that is um, that part of the answer. And then the other thing you asked about is what other, you know, beyond Scientology, what other technical things would some of these destructive cults out there utilize technology for or modern, um, you know, outward aimed functions, of course, we see. But what about internal functions? What, what you're trying to do as a cult leader is recruit, retain. 
and suck up as much power, money, influence, sex, whatever you need or want from these people. That's what you're trying to accomplish. Anything that will help you achieve that end will be something you would welcome. So if you could reach more people for purposes of recruitment or retainment, retention with AI, with an Oculus, with, you know, virtual reality meeting spaces, with virtual reality recruitment, with virtual reality events, with virtual reality one-on-ones where you could have an interaction with somebody on the other side of the planet. Yeah, of course they would take advantage of that kind of technology. Um if it served their purposes and if the technology was such that they could use it to manipulate the hearts and minds of their followers. It, and, it, and it certainly is the case that the more, you know, real the simulations look, the more immersive the technology becomes, the more that cult leader type personalities will glom onto this technology to use it to manipulate other people. This is already happening. Unfortunately, and something I am going to comment on here that goes beyond the scope, I think, of your question, Nick, but is actually much more of the problem with this technology, are the people who are developing it and what they're developing it, what they're using it for, what they're doing with it. You know, Facebook hasn't changed one thing about their operations since the uh, revelations of the Social Dilemma documentary and all the things we're learning about their algorithms and their, and their ways of operating. Facebook is not a good group. It's not a good group of people running that show. And we have the, the VR, for example, they purchased, Facebook purchased Oculus, which produces a VR headset, and they do that for gaming. Well, Facebook decided to purchase that. And what do you think Facebook is doing with that technology? Well, how valuable do you think it would be to Facebook to not only know what it is you're interested in and what sort of subject matter you'll respond to, but what if they knew down to the millimeter where your eyes go on a page when your eyes are on a screen looking and perusing and and going through the web and Facebook is tracking all of your web activity if you let them, not just your Facebook activity. If you download Facebook or you download Messenger, I think you'll find in the terms of service that they will try to get you to opt in on tracking you 24-7. And they want to know where your eyeballs are at. Why do you think they want to know that? Well, in the end of the day, it really comes down to trying to sell you things, but they're trying to sell you things by manipulating your attention, focusing your attention where they want it, not where you want it, where they want it, because they need to keep your eyes on the screen for as long as they can. Now, that's Facebook. That's a mega corporation, and that's the level of control they're interested in managing and and creating and and retaining over you. So the lines are becoming a little blurred these days between these mega corporations and what they're up to and destructive cults and what they're up to. The lines are a little blurry these days. And I don't say this to be alarmist. I don't say this because I like the situation. I'm not telling this because I think Facebook is a 
is a you know is a is a cult it's worse than a cult because it's a hidden cult it's a hidden influencer they are doing things to you through social media platforms that you have no idea about and you never ever consented to they're doing it anyway because they can because you're the product and so is it a cult? No, but does it act like a cult? Does it act like a cult leader? Does it engage in thought reform technology? Does it use methods of thought reform to control you and your attention and your time? Yeah, they do. They do. And we all kind of know they do, and we're just kind of letting it happen. I figured it'd be an opportunity for me to talk about this a little bit because it does fit in with the subject matter of your question, Nick. And it is something that is so big and so overwhelming that most of us are having a real hard time trying to, you know, deal with it at all. And it's a lot easier to just kind of go into denial about it. And I get it. I totally get that. What are you or I supposed to do about, you know, Zuckerberg's overreach? We really can't do a whole lot of anything except be aware of it. And push back against it as much as we can. And just get off those goddamn platforms. I, I you know, I, it's, it's, a, it's a tough situation for me because my livelihood depends on me creating content that you guys can see. And I have to use social media platforms to share that content and comment on that content. And for you guys to be able to get it. But that doesn't change the fact that these platforms are using some very scary and very powerful technology against us. And they are leveraging it against us in ways that none of us would be comfortable with if we knew about it, which is why I recommend finding out about it so that you are not giving them as many opportunities as they would like for you, for them to control you and your attention and your money and your time. And uh, that might be actually the broadest example or answer to the question you actually asked, Nick. So, um, yeah, AI helmets, sure, that's in the future. You know, anything is in the future that's going to help them leverage your mental biases and logical fallacies against you. Anything that will accomplish that, some cult leader somewhere will use against you. What that might look like, you know, I don't know, it, but it'll look like how it looks now. It'll just look sexier, <laughs> if you know what I mean. All right, there you go. All right, let's do some flash answers. Michelle Balduke, I heard you on the Fair Game podcast, and I never knew that you don't have a bachelor's degree. That's so surprising because you're super smart and in graduate school. How can you get a master's degree without first earning a bachelor's? Are you required to do a thesis? Did you take the GRE or GMAT? Hey, Michelle, I am doing a program through the University of Salford in the United Kingdom. They have a little bit of a different setup than the American system, but the credentials and the work and the, and the degree are, are, are still transferable and usable. Um, this isn't some <laughs> uh, diploma mill or something. Um, and the way that I got to the, to the master's program is my professional experience. I've been working for the last seven, eight years right prior to doing this program interviewing. I wrote a book. I have um, 
talked, you know, for hundreds, thousands of hours with uh, therapists, sociologists, psychologists, neuroscientists, etc. All that experience and knowledge and learning, I submitted as part of an application for to take part in a program called APEL, A-P-E-L, which allows people who have professional experience to you know, to engage in higher education learning using that real world experience as a substitute for the four years of basic um, college experience that would give you the bachelor's degree. So that's how I got into this program. Um, it was an application process and it, and it was, um, you know, it, it was a little difficult, <laughs> but, and the program um, it has pulled no punches. I mean, this master's program expects you to know what you need to know. And if you don't know it, then it's on you to figure it out. So for example, I've never taken a statistics class and I had to bone up and catch up on statistics and how to do it. Uh, so that was learning that I had to do on my own time in addition to the learning on the master's program. So that's kind of how it's gone. Frank Gray. What's the derivation and meaning behind the much love sign-off that is frequently seen in Scientology correspondence? Is that only used by Sea Org members, by public? It seems incredibly corny outside of a family or true friendship context, and I can't believe anyone believes it signifies any sincerity in the true sense. I don't remember seeing the concept of love used in other Scientology writing. Hey, Frank, thanks for this. Uh, yeah, ML is how Hubbard would sign off almost everything. ML, much love. And so all of us would do that too. It was a pretty standard way of signing off uh, with telexes or correspondence. And if I, here's, here's the funny thing and why I, why I took this question up is because one, if I, and I saw other people do this too, if I was pissed at the person, if I was sending a, a dispatch or a telex to somebody that I was upset with, I wouldn't use ML. I would say sincerely or some other thing, right? Hoping subliminally they would catch it. Um, I, you know, it was really just sort of a habitual thing. We just saw Hubbard do it. It was sort of monkey see, monkey do kind of a thing. I don't know where it came from or why Hubbard used it. Um, but I can tell you that the word love is uh, discoursed about. Hubbard talks has a whole little uh, thing about love in the book Dianetics. So there is some other writing about the subject uh, of love. And there are a couple lectures on the second dynamic and love and romantic love and stuff like that, too. So anyway, I just thought I'd let you know there is some more stuff on that. But none of that connects up with the ML or much love signatory. I, I, I just don't know where that came from. Travis, which one of the following would you be if you could? 17th century pirate, drug runner for Pablo Escobar, samurai, or king of England during the plague? Okay, I do not know what is up with this list of things. Um, you know, pirate appeals to me, except I'm not really interested in killing innocent people. Uh, I'm not going to be a drug runner for a, for a drug king. Um, I'm not going to be the king of England during the plague. So I guess that leaves me with samurai. And I do happen to have a great deal of interest in more than passing knowledge of samurai and the samurai life. So I think I could fit in with that. Although, um, you know, medieval Japan is not necessarily my first choice of places to go or in, in history to live. But I do think I would identify with and could understand and, and go along with the life of a samurai better than the other choices you gave me. So there's my answer. 
All right, guys, thanks for tuning in here and inviting me into your home to talk to you for this hour. I have really appreciated the opportunity, and I hope my answers were enlightening, useful, educational, you know, at least entertaining in some fashion. Thanks for coming around and watching me, folks, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye.